Hi everyone, welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Today's podcast is important, I'll tell you that right up front, and it's going to focus on two things. It's going to focus on some of the lessons from Felix in the Consulting Office Season 1, and you know, obviously you're probably watching her videos now to see how we trained her, and it's going to focus on some of the observations that I've um, developed with an executive client I have who is... Um, the chief operating officer of one of the five largest companies in Kazakhstan. So anyway, uh, he's a new client. Um, he was referred by a previous uh, Kazakh client, and uh, I'm still learning about him. So I think that some of the observations about how we've been training him, particularly in these early stages, they may seem irrelevant to consulting clients, but I think they are. And I'm going to just pull on the most relevant things and I'm going to pull on the most relevant things from Felix to to focus on why some people make it in in their journeys into McKinsey and thereafter and why others do not make it. I generally stay away from writing articles and developing podcasts that seem like self-help because firms consulting clients by definition should not be helpless you know, we, we look for the best. And the way I'm going to position this podcast is for people that are, you know, high ambitions, high achievers who want to achieve even greater things. So let's just start at the at the, at the beginning here, right? Um, why do some people make it and others do not make it? Generally, going into McKinsey, being successful in life and so on. And, and there's two things I want to point out here. Firstly, you know, as a th- I have a thermodynamics background, um, you know, they used to call us rocket scientists. I believe in energy balances. Everything's an energy balance for me. I stopped doing that for the last few decades, but I've started again. So the bottom line is that I'm going to point at an observation about Felix, and then I'll ring, link it back to the advice we gave this executive. If you look at Felix's videos, she is able to maintain an exceptional degree of concentration and high performance over. 90 minutes to two hours. Some of those videos are two hours. We edit it down so you can't see it. But on average, her lessons were 90 minutes to two hours, right? And you can see she's able to maintain an exceptional level of performance. But what you don't see is what happens behind the, the scenes, which is slightly more impressive. There were many times whereby we would book calls for Felix, um, cutting straight into breakfast, um, you know, at times when she had not eaten anything in the mornings. So she'd be coming into those, co- into those calls, you know, pretty tired, I think, because she was working on a PhD thesis at the same time, up late, um, sending emails at 1 in the morning and so on, and then coming in for calls at 7 and 8 in the morning. And she would keep her concentration together for the 90 minutes, but then after the call, you'd notice her hand was shaking a little. Now... Why do people fail? Let's just move the thinking in this direction. I think people fail because they run out of the energy to succeed. Now, that sounds so philosophical, so let me not let me break it down into practical terms so you know it's not philosophical, right? What could cause people to sort of you know run out of energy here? I think that either they don't have enough energy reserves to start off with, or they are not replenishing them. Now, it may sound like such a simple thing, energy. Am I talking about food? Am I talking about, 
you know, a a ambition. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, I think that firstly, you got to split energy into two groups. Yeah, one is I think, uh, what's what I'm looking for? I don't want to use the word spiritual. It sounds sort of ridiculous, but I would think. Um, ambition and the other one is physical energy so let's look at two groups one is some of us have ambition inherently we're just ambitious by nature but we have to constantly replenish that ambition by being exposed to and seeing other people who are successful right at the same time you have to also have access to physical energy which is you know protein supplements and so on so what happens is that you you, you I find people mismanage that balance they are either really talented and sharp in their minds, but they are not living a lifestyle which allows them to fulfill their intellectual capabilities. I'll give you a classic examples of that. I think Felix was an example of someone who fulfilled it. We pushed that lady hard, right? What you don't know is sometimes she would do back-to-back -back sessions, two hours, two hours, two hours, three separate days. That is very difficult to do. You're probably thinking two separate days. Ah, that's easy. They're separate days, but it's not easy. Two-hour sessions back-to-back -back over three days will kill someone. So what was good about Felix is that she had the ambition to see things through, but she also, I think, managed her life very carefully to make sure physically she could handle what was happening to her. And I find that if I look at why people fail, they mismanage that. They have the right ambition, but they cannot execute it. Or they have the execution skills, which means physically and health-wise, their body is strong, but they lack the ambition. Now, you've got to manage both, right? You can't be an Olympic swimmer and be, you know, someone who can't read because you're not going to go anywhere. On the other hand, you know, you, you can't be someone who is brilliant in their mind but don't have the energy to do anything. Of course, you know, Stephen Hawking will be the uh, outlier that proves the rule. But, you know, don't say Stephen Hawking did it, therefore I can do it as well and vegetate on your couch. The bottom line is that it's not so much about, you know, being healthy and being sporty. No, it comes down to um, what one of the American universities has as their... Um, motto, it's think and do. You have to be thinking and doing at the same time. And that's why I think people fail. If you look at all of the people who've been through the program and all of our executive clients, the ones who are very successful are the ones who balance thinking and doing. And the ones who fail are the ones who are very good at doing but don't think enough or are very good at thinking but don't do enough. And I would say that I could even sub-split that even further. I think females are very good at thinking but don't do enough. I've seen that in our clients. They'll spend forever planning but they don't actually execute it because they're afraid of failure, afraid of being judged and so on. While I found males, and this is all relative, right? I'm not saying males are dumb. They are sharper at doing but they're okay if they haven't thought it through. They almost have this learn by doing model while females have this let's get it right get credibility kind of way of doing things. Now, neither model works. You can only go so far with it, but I think you have to be comfortable. Think, do. Think, do. Think, do. Because you can't plan things in perpetuity. You have to roll out some kind of pilot in your life and get feedback. Now, I had a client who took one and a half years to do a first case coaching practice session. I mean, it took one and a half years for her to stop working with us and go and find another practice partner because she was not ready to practice and now that she's done it she, she's realized how much she's learning from practicing with other people so you know with, with that lady it's not a question she's obviously someone who thinks does very little and if we could get her to do more so one of the things we're doing with her is reducing our criticism 
because I notice when you criticize her, she doesn't do anything. So we, we reduce our criticism. We just withdraw it. And we're letting her go out there. We're obviously giving her very careful feedback when she does something wrong. But that's the lesson here. Why do people fail? They cannot balance thinking and doing, right? Now, we've had, I mean, if you look at our success rate, placement rate anyway, we've had a 64% placement rate. It was 81% at one stage, 82 I think, at one stage. You know, um, success rate drops by over 20%. How do we know what's happening is working here, right? That's an important point. Well, I think that... I think there's two reasons here why our success rate has dropped a little. The first one is very important and again it links back to advice for you. So I'm not just talking about firms consulting, I'm talking about for you. Now one of the things I'm very scared of to be honest is falling into a complacency trap. Right? I. I am terrified of being complacent to the point that I... You know, people always say, Michael, how come you don't have children? I don't have children because when you have children, your risk profile changes. When you have a child, I mean, obviously adorable, you know, hopefully the child has Asian straight hair and, you know, so on. But um, when you have a child, your risk profile changes because you want to do things that are going to provide for that child in the short term, medium and long term. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but... Ultimately, if you had to think of this in pure economic terms, you have a fixed cost. And of course, it becomes highly variable if they eat a lot of candy, but it's basically a fixed cost. And if you have a high fixed cost base, you need to have a high degree of perpetual or passive income coming in. So what happens is people do things to secure that income that they wouldn't normally do, right? So there's a reason why entrepreneurs are younger most of the times because they don't have a high fixed cost holding them down. Now, you could argue your wife or husband's also a fixed cost, but that's a different story. But I think when it comes to kids, it's a little bit different because you tend to hate them less than your husband or wife that you want to divorce, right? I mean, I'm not saying I'm like that, but I, I have friends who are definitely unhappy in their marriages and so on. The point is this, and again, bring it back to... Um, to advice for you is that when we look at the people we take in, we say, okay, do we take in people who are definitely going to get offers or do we take tough candidates? Now, if by taking tough candidates, we're forced to reinvent ourselves and we change things a lot of times. In fact, the stuff you're seeing now in the consulting offer, we've already adapted it and we're working to roll it out because we work on one-year cycles. The point of this story is that you should always be unsuccessful because if you are being successful all the time, you are taking things that are too easy to do, and that's very important. So when you are making decisions, do not do things that are so easy that they look great on your scorecard of life, but you're not learning anything from it. You are not, you know, in, in business terms, you've got to be cannibalizing yourself. And it's very hard to do that. And it's called the innovator's dilemma, right? If you read Clayton Christensen's book, and if you know my background, you know I read a lot on startups and so on. I just like the industry. I like the sector. I like the economics of that business. But when you are so successful at something, so let, let, let's bring this down to um, a student who's now working with us. If you are so successful at one thing, you are usually unwilling to invest in a new skill because the investment in a new skill means you can't invest in the skill you are now good at. So you are unwilling to cannibalize what you are now good at 
to develop a new skill. Let's, let's make this super practical, right? Someone who is um, got high grades is usually unwilling to invest in building social skills because they're going to cannibalize their GPA from 4.00 to 3.8, 3.9. That's a classic example of the innovator's dilemma that Clayton Christensen talks about. And um, you can apply it to life as well, right? Um, you are known as the academic. Everything you've achieved in life to get to MIT or Stanford or you know whatever university you're at, um, Darden or whatever it is, you've got there because of your grades. Now you are known for your grades. Your entire social network is because of your grades. You are treated special because of your grades. You get away with things like not cleaning your room and being awkward and you know can't dance in front of girls and so on, or a girl who can't dance in front of guys because of your high GPA. People put up with you because you're the genius, but you can't do anything else. Now that's the classic innovator's dilemma. You're so good at something, your GPA. But at a certain point, as you start getting into the American, especially the American and Canadian education systems, you realize, you know what, GPA is important, but these schools pride teamwork, collaboration. And now, you, you know, think of your energy ambition, one type of energy, and basic physical ambition, the other physical energy, the other type of energy, as resources like cash that you need to spend. Now, do you spend it on your grades? Do you eat energy bars on a Saturday and sit there and read your physics or philosophy book? Or do you eat energy bars and then you go out and socialize with people to build networks? Now, that's a classic example here, right? It's about understanding where you want to make the investment. And initially, when you start off making the investment in a new area, you'll see a dip in performance. That's natural. I mean, first time you dance, it's pretty much scary. You know, it's a... PG-13 rated movie when it comes out. Children shouldn't watch it. But as you go to a few more parties and watch other people dance, you get a little bit better on it. Then it becomes, you know, PG-10. eventually becomes a Disney movie. But you get my point, right? So what people do is they're afraid of learning new things. And what you want to do is you need to be comfortable cannibalizing what you are good at when you are so good at something that you are... that you have a capability better than what is required in the market. That's very important, right? 3.9 GPA, wonderful. 4.0, wonderful. Does it matter if you had a 3.9 or 4.0? Not really at the end of the day. Anything above for me at 3.7, 3.8, I think you're intelligent, right? I am impressed when I see a 4.00, but I'm really not impressed when I see they haven't cannibalized that skill to develop a new skill. So you want to be a cannibal. You want to consume yourself in a lack of a better word. I don't know if that's a cannibal. You eat your own species that's a cannibal. I'm not sure what the term is, but you gotta you gotta eat yourself up a little bit, yeah, right? So maybe the term cannibalization is not the right word, but you get my point. Now let, let's just talk about let's just talk about image a little bit, yeah. You know uh, Felix was someone I think who when she entered the program suffered from a lack of confidence who then changed and become this little butterfly at the end. And even with this client I work with now in Kazakhstan, they are so careful. You know, this guy opens a magazine and says, Ah, this is my rival. Look, he appeared in this magazine here. I'm not in the magazine. What do I do? Everyone's talking about his success. What do I do? Do not compare your rival's image to your reality. Listen to that phrase again. Do not compare your rival's image to your reality. I can assure you right now 
of every client I've worked with, they're all a basket case inside. No one's clean inside. It's like, it's like, it's like uh, how can I put it? It's like it's like a house in Knightsbridge in London. So beautiful outside. Probably going for what ten million pounds. But inside, it's like a teenager with very little social skills has been living there and there's clothing all over the place. That's how most clients are. They project this amazing image externally and they have this very weak internal side. So when you start comparing your internal disaster to other people's external confidence, you're not comparing like for like. You don't know what the person is like internally. You don't know what they're cutting corners on and where they're not investing. So it's impossible to do that. And we do that a lot. We look at this person and say, wow, that person is so successful. They're on the cover of Time magazine. They're appearing in Bloomberg and so on. But that's not what success is. Success is not whether people say you're successful. Successful is whether you achieve the goals you set out to do. And most people listening to this, I don't think many executive clients listen to our podcast. I know a few do. I wonder why. But, you know, when you are now young, your success should be based on your balancing of thinking and doing. It's not about improving confidence. Confidence is for losers, in my opinion. If you want to go improve your confidence, go to kindergarten and start life all over again. You are never going to be confident. That's just the reality of it. You're never going to be confident because... By nature, if you are confident, you're not in your, you are working in your comfort zone, and that's actually wasting your skills. You should always be out of your comfort zone, and by definition, that means you are not comfortable. But you should be comfortable at not being comfortable. But that's a different story. I can do a podcast on that if you want, right? So my point here is that don't compare yourself to other people's external images, because I can assure you it's a well-crafted image. Probably, you know, with the executive clients, his his peers, people competing with him in the Kazakh. Uh, um, business space probably have public relations specialists probably have a designer and so on working with them he doesn't I, i'm he doesn't have those things yet but i'm deliberately not asking for him to invest in those things because i think he needs to invest in his career and who cares if fortune doesn't want to put him on the magazine as long as the company does well he will get what he wants at the end right now i just want to talk about whether we are too um too vague or in underselling the difficulties of joining McKinsey and being successful at McKinsey because we don't care if you get into McKinsey. For us, that's not the end goal. We expect you'll get in and we want you to then be a successful McKinsey consultant or BCG consultant and go on to serve industry. Now, I think the industry, you know, there's a whole cottage industry of companies that are underselling the difficulties here. They they are not, they, are, they write these really, you know, when I look at these testimonials that God almost want to vomit because they are so misleading and so one-sided. I'll tell you right now, it's not easy to join these firms and it's not easy to succeed at these firms. When I say succeed, I mean become a partner and then go on to do something meaningful in your life. You know, I see all these people who go to McKinsey and BCG for one year, two years, and they leave and they just spend the rest of their lives telling people I worked at McKinsey. I mean, that is sad almost right you like you know i watched this movie once i think it was with i forget the actor's name he's not very famous thing is james spader or david spader and it's a show about a child star called dicky i can't remember why i was watching this movie because that says a lot about me as well but anyway it's about a child star who's now something like in his 30s 
and he was a child star when he was five years old. And for f from the time he was five till his mid-thirties, he lives off the fact that he was a child star when he was five years old. Now, that's a little bit sad. You should not be living off the fact you were a BCG and McKinsey consultant 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That is sad. You should use the training McKinsey gave you to be successful. And I think that a lot of what we read in publications and so on create the impression that it is okay to go to McKinsey and that's your biggest accomplishment. That's not an accomplishment. There's a reason why McKinsey has an up-and-out policy because they know some losers are going to get into their system and they, that's why they have the up-and-out policy that they can catch you later if you got the offer. And being managed out is accepted, but at the end of the day, it's, it is failure, right? Now, we don't make it that way when you were at the firm. We try to make you feel good about it. But you're not getting into McKinsey as your overall objective. You are expected to make partner when you join firms consulting. That's the highest expectation we have of candidates. So I do feel that you want to have a higher set of ambition for yourself. Not go in there thinking, oh, I went through this gauntlet of getting the interviews. I've made it. You have not made it. You've achieved a kind of accomplishment, but it's not enough. You need to think further and further and further and further. Now, now let's just look at some of the um, good habits and bad habits that I've been able to draw out from you know people like Felix and people like this Kazakh client and also general firms consulting clients. I think one thing that shocks many of our clients is how we push them to do things, you know, um, clients come into the program and they think it's going to be, oh, Michael's going to look at the resume, he's going to give some advice. Nah, it doesn't work that way. Michael goes through your resume like he's leading a SWAT team through the streets of New York. The point is that everything is checked, every little nook and cranny in your resume is overhauled, and people are not ready for that. It, it's a little bit of a shock to them that their resume has to be written seven times and sometimes 17 times. They don't know how to respond, right? I, I mean, they have no idea what is happening. Beyond that, I think that we expect a high degree of thinking and doing from our clients, which shocks a lot of them. A lot of them want to do, but they don't want to think. So they just want to get out there and start networking and say, uh-uh, you can't do that. Battle plan first, work on your resume, understand what your profile is. This is the logic. Does it make sense? Now let's follow the logic. A lot of them want to have a plan, and that's the thing that really surprises them. They all want a plan. What the hell, man? How in the world are you going to have a plan for something that's never been done before? Everyone is unique. If you think there's a plan that you're going to develop for you that's going to hit every single milestone you know, to the 24-hour mark over the next eight months, you are seriously delusional. You need to be flexible and able to respond in real time, right? And that's what surprised a lot of people. This ability to, to, to plan in real time as opposed to build long-term planning. I mean, long-term planning is pretty much dead. You know, It was in vogue in the 80s and 70s and they died a miserable death in the 1990s. And now we're probably going to you know, exhume that body and probably cremate it as well just to make sure no one tries to you know, resuscitate it as a zombie or whatever it is. My, my point is that if you're thinking you're going to plan this out to the you know, nth degree, it's impossible. If you have a truly unique profile or any profile, don't plan. 
have general guidelines to say that, okay, first step, resume, second step, networking, third step, this. Now, the most common response I get, Michael, when can I apply? And I always say, well, you know, I just told you now that um, it comes down to how well you network. And if you network poorly, you shouldn't apply. Now, people don't really ex accept that, I think. But I think the best candidates always understand that there's a fair degree of flexibility involved here. The other bad habit I see amongst a lot of candidates, but I think Felix was good at this. She never followed this habit. Is that they'll read something in a forum, and they'll bring it up and say, "Well, I read this in a forum." But you know, while while I think that I want to help them, I I can't respond to every bad piece of advice out there. As I tell people, everyone's entitled to an opinion. It doesn't mean it should be read. So so be very careful about reading things. And I understand that you know there's a lot at stake here, but you know. People write nonsense all the time. So don't follow it. And even if someone went through the gauntlet, it doesn't mean the advice is relevant. They could have had a completely different experience, right? So, you know, there's been a lot of debate internally amongst firms consulting about whether we are picking the right kind of candidates. You know, are we picking candidates who are going to make an impact in the long term or are we just picking people to make money? It, we are not a revenue-driven organization, but I ask these tough questions of the firm to make sure we never fall into that trap. Now, someone once pointed out to me, but Michael, you know, if I look at, um, you know, the people firms consulting talk about, you guys never talk about someone who is going to go on and solve, uh, I don't know, the diabetes problem, or is going to introduce good governance to some, you know, despotic regime around the world. And, and my, my thought to them is, well, how do you know? You know, every great idea started with some dumb idea and small thought that everyone laughed at and everyone thought was ridiculous and no one thought would grow into something big. Nothing starts big. I mean, n nothing can start big. If you start something too big, for those of you doing your PhD, you know if you start with a too big problem, you can't finish your thesis in time because there's just too many sub-hypotheses that sink you in data collection and analysis. So you got to look for, what we look for is, we look for people that have the right value system. They can do things. They're ambitious, and they have simple ideas. When I say simple ideas, remember what I tell, what I say about firms concerned. We, our job is not to place you at McKinsey. It's what's going to happen after you leave McKinsey. And I look at them and I say, okay, you want to go back to? We have a candidate who's from the Saka region of Russia. Um, you want to go back to the far northeast and you know bring about change in this region? Okay, you don't know how you're going to do it, but. I think that's a good idea. It's a small idea. One village is where you start and then you grow out from there. I like that. When someone comes to me and says, oh, Michael, I want to change the world, blah, 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 immediately I'm turned off. Because I feel that the person has been bought, they've bought into this trap of sounding like they are making an impact versus having thought through how they're going to make an impact. And that for me is an important thing. I listen to people all the time who have these big ideas and I'm not interested in it because s saying you have a big idea because it sounds like it's the right thing to say is very different from having a small idea that you want to create into a big idea that's going to have a massive impact across the world, right? And that to me is super important. You know, some people we pick and people, Michael said, but, and, and the other coaches and mentors say, but, but why did you sack this person? I mean, they have nothing. And I say, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about the idea they have, it's about the person. You know, a, a great person is going gonna, is gonna to take a nothing idea and fix it and make it fantastic and go somewhere with their McKinsey training. 
a bad person who has all the skills is just going to go to McKinsey and be proud of the fact that they made to McKinsey and maybe achieve something, right? And 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 the question is, you know, how do I know this person has potential? Well, I actually, I would say it's a trial and error process. There was this lady from Princeton. I'm going to use her real school here. She probably is going to listen to this podcast and send me an email afterwards, but I won't identify her. She joined our program a few months ago, six months, seven months ago. No, it must have been nine months ago. She was not very, I think, disciplined in the program, and I removed her from the program. I basically said, okay, I'm going to take you out of the program, and I think it's for your own benefit because you're not that committed. And I liked it. I really liked it. I thought she was such an amazing lady. And then I put her back into the program recently. She wrote back and said she wants to be back in the program. She's changed. We had a long discussion about what she's changed. And I like her. I mean, so the question is, you know, how do we know these people are going to achieve big things? I don't think there's any one thing, but I think sincerity is very important. If someone can look back and say, hey, you know what, I made a mistake. I'm willing to listen. Um, and these are my reasons. I have no excuses. But... Uh, this is the facts, you know. This is what happened to me. I can't make an excuse for it, but this is what I'm trying to do with my education. I look for that sincerity. Sincerity to me is more important. I do have people who come in all the time and they have these canned answers about, ah, oh, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, and they're so happy with this. And I always ask people about their internship. And when I get these canned answers, like it was the greatest thing in the world, I, I immediately, you know, this person either thinks we are like every other organization who wants to hear the usual marketing fluff, or they actually believe it, in which case they have no they have no um, objectivity that they can apply to a situation. So I think that we look for people that are simple in their ideas, but have a strong, you know, ambition. The other thing I look for is a linchpin in their past, something problematic that could serve as a reminder, a beacon to remind them about why they are trying to achieve what they want to achieve. Because as you become more and more successful, it's very easy to be seduced by the lifestyle and forget that you can achieve more things. So I look for people that have something in their past that I can always go back on and say, well, remember this. This is why you're doing it if they you know, if they do fall off. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. We pick bad people all the time. Uh, and where I think in hindsight, you know, maybe shouldn't be in the program. And we have to work with them. We do work with them. If we think it becomes really bad, we do look at ways to, uh, you know, ask them if they want to be in the program or if they're benefiting from it. Most of them are benefiting it, from it, but are they benefiting enough? That's the question, right? Now, you know, looking at Felix and looking at this Kaza candidate, you know, do we see any commonalities between our clients, the ones who go on to great success and the ones who are very, and the ones who go on to no success? I think, uh, yeah, I think it's very simple. The ones who keep in close contact with us, with shortish kind of emails or long e I don't like long emails generally. I read it very fast, but I don't like long emails. I like short emails, right? The ones who keep in contact with us regularly almost always do better than the ones who do not keep in contact with us. First rule. I don't know what it is about that. I think it's that the more times you keep in contact with me, the more piece of advice I can give you. So, you know, you're never going to be in a position whereby you're doing something and you don't have any guidance. The second one is candidates who listen always do better. Uh, this one is almost like the golden rule. If a candidate doesn't listen, he's going to do bad. You're just going to do miserably. It, it, it's almost guaranteed, right? So when a candidate stops listening to us, and sometimes they stop listening really early in the program, um, they are heading for failure. Examples of stop listening, you know, we have some candidates who will spend a week at business school and come back with a list of 29 things their friends have told them and they want us, they want to check it with us. 
It's not my job to check everything your friends are telling you. I will, you know, we will give you advice and best we think what we think is the best things, but it's not our job to vet your friend's advice because we cannot do that. There's just too much going on for us to do that. But some candidates want to do that. They want to know why this is wrong. They want to know everything. And, you know, we once had a candidate, a, a lawyer, who had this really funny situation whereby he told me, Michael, you're asking me to do this, but give me a very logical reason why you want me to do this. I said, okay, I'm going to explain to you why I cannot give you a logical reason. I, all right, I've given you one logical reason. The, my logical reason for using this resume template is because most partners at the major consulting firms went to the school and they'll recognize the template increasing your probability of having a lower barrier to understanding with them. And then he said, no, that's not good enough. Give me a very logical reason. I said, okay, beyond that, there's a style and image factor. But it's very hard for me to explain that because it's like explaining why the Audi design is better than the BMW design. How do I explain that to someone who doesn't have a design background? I can't. You're assuming you're going to understand the explanation I give you. I've just given you an explanation that you can't follow it. And then this candidate said, no, I still want a very logical explanation. I said, okay, so I gave him a few others. Now, then this candidate went to the Harvard, we to the McKinsey website, looked at the resume format, and he said, oh, McKinsey recommends a similar format, so I'm going to follow it. Now, this is an example of, some, of someone who's not being logical at all. He asked for a logical explanation. We gave it to him. He went to the McKinsey website, which didn't provide a logical explanation, but he followed it. Now, we get that a lot with candidates who think they will follow the logic, but they don't. And they think they are qualified to follow the logic, but they don't. Whenever I see a candidate, I don't, I'm okay if you question the logic. But if you don't want to accept something, it doesn't mean it's wrong. There's a very big difference. If you cannot accept something that's right, it's a very big difference from you not accepting something because it is wrong. Now, here's an example of a candidate where he received the logic. He goes to the McKinsey website. There's no explanation for the resume, but he accepts it. Now, we gave him the explanation that McKinsey used it, the partners used it, but he didn't really accept it. So, it's also a trust issue with such a candidate. I always worry that, okay, the candidate doesn't trust us. If you don't trust your coach, it ain't going to go anywhere. You watch any great sports team in the world, there must be you know, a tight relationship between the coach and the team. There's no doubt about it. Now, there are a few coaches who manage through chaos, but eventually the team trusts the coach. And unless the team trusts the coach, they're not going to execute the play correctly or at all. So I always look for those three things, right? Now, people always say that, you know, how do you know that? What makes you think that there is... How, no, well, let me rephrase this question. How do you know there's not this dangerous exuberance and excitement for pursuing consulting jobs? Well, I would say that... You know, I'm not going to take my words. I'm going to take Kevin Coyne's words here. Yeah. It is good when more people are applying for consulting jobs. It is good when more people have access to the best material, which is why the consulting officer, offer is made, you know, almost freely available to some of our major partner schools. And almost is actually made freely available to our major partner schools. It's good for McKinsey when more people apply. It's good for McKinsey when more people have access to the best material. And it is good for the students when more people apply. Because when you're getting the jobs, you know that you're getting it because you are the best rather than getting it because there was a lack of supply in the market. So when so, so this is, you know, someone once used the word, um, is this a bubble market in consulting? I don't understand that. You're using the term out of context. It's only a bubble market when a buyer is placing a ludicrous valuation on something. 
it would be a, a bubble if McKinsey was paying any money to bring people across, but that's not what's happening. An excess supply is the opposite of a bubble market, actually. That's when you have no bubble. Excess supply is a buyer's market, or it's a, it's a, it's a seller's market, for lack of a better word, whereby, uh, sorry, it's a, yeah, it is a buyer's market, whereby McKinsey can pick and choose what they want, and because there's so many good people applying, they don't have to pay too big salary. So, you know, I, I, I remember someone asked me this question, you know, are you creating this kind of bubble? And I thought, you don't understand the phrase. You don't know what a bubble means. And, you know, whenever I hear these seemingly smart comments, I always wonder, should I sit here and explain it to the person, or sh they're probably not going to understand it. So just walk away. I've actually chosen to walk away from these conversations. They add no value to anyone's life. Now, you know, finally, I want to talk about just a one observation about Felix that I think is important. Um, people always ask me, why do you do this? You know, why does firms consulting, all ex-partners, obviously, and a lot of money do this? My first response is, well, you just assume we're not profitable. But forget about finances. We don't track finances that well. I mean, I think we're pretty bad at it because we don't worry about it, right? And many clients know we just give them a lot of free stuff all the time and free time and so on because we care about our clients. But I'll tell you what's very, why we do this. We do it because, let's look at Felix, right? I mean, that's someone everyone can can look at because I don't want to talk about an hypothetical person. Let's talk about Felix. Now, here's someone who I think is just an amazing person, you know? She's um, young, um, uh, intellects off the roof, Clearly, I think she has such a good value system, such a sincere profile, so intelligent, beautiful young lady, um, uh, sharp as a whip, um, really committed. Why in the world would you not want to get up in the morning and work with people like that? Think about it. Think about where you are now in your career. Right? You may be working at a bank, heaven forbid, if you work for a bank, the culture sucks in a bank. Heaven forbid if you work in a Canadian company, my God, the culture in Canadian companies leave little to be desired because it's such a boring culture. Everyone sits in their little offices and cubicles. No one laughs. No one smiles. I think it's the same in Britain when I used to work there. But anyway, my point is this. Wouldn't it be amazing to get up in the morning and work with the 50 smartest people in the world who are hand-selected, hand-picked, that are going to go on to be captains of industry. That's what I and the rest of firms consulting people have an opportunity to do. From our nerve center in Toronto, we are guiding people who are going to change the world 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Some of them are already doing that. Some of our early clients have already left McKinsey. One lady from Russia is going to be running for mayor soon. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. How many young ladies are running for Russia, in May in Russia? Well, it's a tiny town. You're never going to figure it out, right? It's never going to make the news or anything like that. But anyway, I can see this lady being president one day. Uh, you know, hopefully Vladimir Putin decides to retire one day and she'll become president. But I have nothing against Vladimir Putin. It's kind of a joke that, you know, created itself. But my point is that uh, you work with these amazingly talented people and it's a very secretive network because re really... It's hard to know who's within firms consulting and who's not there because we never disclose the identities. She's this very elite club of very talented people who are going to go on to change the world. Why in the world would you not want to get up in the morning and work with those kind of people? So I, I think that's very important, right? And I think finally, um, you know, when when you are... Um, and this, this kind of podcast is kind of deviated a little bit and I apologize for that. 
but I think it's all important points. So that's why I allowed myself to meander just a little bit, not too much. I think that, you know, just to circle back, I think that when, you, when you're watching Felix's videos, and you're probably watching Samantha's and Rafik's and so on, whoever you're watching, but I would you know, focus on Felix to start off with, is that watch the likability factor. It's very high for her. She makes the session so interesting. She makes these funny jokes, very humble, that you want to help her. As a coach, the likability factor is very, and the likability factor is a crucial thing, you know. Uh, Felix is likable, no doubt about it. You spend time with her, you want to help her. Now, if you can make the likability factor a central part of your arsenal of weapons, you're a winner no matter what happens. You know, I remember reading a story about Warren Buffett. I don't know if it's true. You know, people always write up these wonderful stories about people they idolize. But even if it's not true, it's a good story. He read the book, How, uh, no, How to win friends and influence people, how to influence people and win, win friends by Dale Carnegie. And he said that if you are very smart and you are abrasive or critical, people hate you. But if you are very smart and you make people feel good about themselves, they will love you. Now, if you listen to Edward's podcast on the client conversations page, click on clients and you see his podcast there. He's a great example of someone who I think is also likable. And he tells me up front, Michael, I've used how to win friends and influence people as the you know, basis of how I network with people. And you can listen to the podcast. Now, if you are likable, if you are genuinely likable, I can assure you your barrier to success has just dropped 50%. If you are intelligent, but you're abrasive and you are difficult, you're going to go far. But the first time you fall a little and you want people's help, they're going to pull out a knife for you. And that's a very important lesson here that I want to give you. Felix was likable. There's a reason that I agreed to extend her sessions, some sessions 20 onwards, is because I liked her. I wanted to see her succeed. I still am maintained contact with her. In fact, I see an email in my inbox from her. The likability factor is crucial. Don't be a, 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 you know, don't be a lovable fool. Uh, and what's the word, a hated jerk or something, be a lovable star. So the point is be very intelligent but be likable. You don't have to criticize people to show your intellect. You don't have to be arrogant to show you're confident. And you don't have to confuse competence with, you know, confidence. They're completely different things. Don't f confuse competence with arrogance. Now, I've touched on many different points here, so I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to name this podcast when I do you know, actually load it. But think very carefully about the advice we've given you here. And I would say that, you know, definitely Felix's likability factors, attention to detail, a commitment, the fact that I do feel she balances, you know, mind and hand, think and do. She thinks she does. She thinks she does very carefully. Some of the reasons that she's going to be a breakout success in the future, no doubt about it, right? She's going to be a superstar. But it's very easy to learn from her. And the same thing with this Kazakh client, you know, same advice for him. You know, he's going to be a star in the future. You can already see it because he asks the dumb questions that no one else asks us. But he also takes advice very carefully. So, you know, there's a lot of things I've touched on here. I would say that if you want to, you know, focus on the most important things, it's think and do. Think and do. Think and do. Do not fall into this trap of being good at one because you will never succeed. As always, if you have any comments and questions, feel free to post them.